this morning I'm not going to be speaking from one particular passage, although we will refer to that passage that I just read and amongst other passages. Um, uh, but we're, So let's now uh, pray and ask God to help us as we come to his word. Oh Lord God, we do want to thank you for your goodness to us. And thank you for the opportunity for us to consider your word now. Please help me to teach your word well, clearly, and in the power of the Holy Spirit. And please cause us all to hear what you say to us. And Lord, if our thinking needs to change, if our lives need to change, we pray that this will happen. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this morning I want to us to consider the question, what is the goal of God's saving activity? Why did Jesus come into the world? Why did God raise Jesus from the dead? Why did God pour out the Holy Spirit? Indeed, before that, why did God do all that he did with the people of Israel? Why did he choose Abraham? And why did God bring Israel out of Egypt and into the promised land and, and give them those centuries in the promised land? Why did God do these things? Why is Jesus coming again? What is his purpose in all of this? Well, of course, the big overarching thing is for his glory. Of course, that's right. He did it for his glory. But what was God wanting to achieve by doing these things? Well, I expect probably most of us would probably answer something like this. Well, he did it because he wanted to save us from our sins. And that is, of course, right as far as it goes. But in fact, what the Bible tells us, and this is what I'd want to try to convey to us today, is that the great governing idea behind all that God did in, in his saving work is not just that he might have a collection of saved individuals but that he might have a people a united people a bride to present to his son the eternal son of God that the son might be married to a bride now of course it's not that there was anything deficient in the Lord Jesus Christ it's not that that somehow he was somehow lacking anything or, or that he needed to have a bride in order to be fulfilled not at all he is the eternal all-sufficient Son of God. But God the Father determined 
that he would bestow a wonderful gift upon his son, the gift of his bride, the church. And so the whole of human history, the whole of the, of the purposes of God are all going towards this great day when there will be the marriage of Christ and his church. That's where we're all heading. That's what it's all about. And this means that the church is the most important thing in the whole of creation. Next to God himself, there is nothing more important than the church. Now, before I go too far, I need to just explain what I mean by that word church because the word church is, is in, our, in our Anglo-Saxon culture that we're in, is likely to be misunderstood. Because when you say to somebody the word church, there's two things you might think of. One is you might think of a church building. People say, oh, I'm going to go to church. So they think of a building. Or they think of a big, powerful institution like the Church of England or like the Roman Catholic Church. And they, they find that very off-putting because they think, well, this is very, very powerful organization. It's got a hierarchy of, 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 of priests and then bishops and archbishops and cardinals and a pope at the top and it's got billions of, 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 of pounds in, in wealth they say I don't like that now both of those words are not what the Bible means when the word Bible uses the word church and, it, and it's, what, it's one, of the, one of the sad accidents of history that, that the word church uh, was used in the King James version of the Bible apparently under the assistance of, of King James. Because the earlier translation of the Bible, uh, done, by, done by Wycliffe uh, and, and Tyndale, they, they used the word assembly. And it would have been so much better if, if that had carried on. But anyway, but what is the church? The church is an assembly. The Greek word, the original Greek word, means an assembly, a gathering. Ecclesia. It means a gathering together, a, a, a pulling together. And it's used in, in Acts 19, it's used about the, the riot which took place in, in Ephesus. Uh, when, when there was a great crowd of people who came, went into the amphitheater and they were all calling for, 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 um, for, for Paul to be killed. The word that's actually used there is Ecclesia, which is what is normally translated church. It means a gathering. An assembly. And that word is used in two ways, two senses in the Bible. It's used, first of all, to describe the assembly of all of God's people in all places and in all time. Those who 
who were God's people thousands of years ago and those who are yet to be born. All of the people of God. That's the what's called what we call the universal church. Sometimes people describe that as the invisible church because you can't see that whole church, can you? Not now. We will see it when Jesus comes again. When all the people will be gathered together. But at the moment you can't see it because, because it would be impossible to gather all true believers from all around the world and gather in one place. And anyway, you'd only have all the ones that are still alive at the moment. What about the ones who died thousands of years ago or the ones who are yet to come? So you've got the, the universal church or the invisible church and then the Bible also uses ecclesia to describe an assembly in a local place. So you've got the church in Rome, the church in Corinth, the church in Philippi. These local churches, local assemblies. And the local assembly is the physical expression in time and space of the universal church. And we show that we are part of the universal church and that we love the universal church by joining with a local assembly where we work out what it means to love one another, pray for each other, submit to each other, and so on and so forth. We can't possibly do that with all Christians in the whole world. So God has organized his people into local assemblies which are many expressions of the universal church of Christ. Now, what I want now what I want to do today is to give you an overview, a very, very quick lightning sketch, and I know this will be very inadequate, but I just want to try to give you an overview from Scripture of the place that the church, this body of Christ, the, 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 the gathering of God's people, has in the purposes of God. And then I want to try to draw out some implications uh, for this, uh, for our lives. And what I hope to show you is that from before the world was made, right the way through over to, the, to when Jesus comes again, the church has been central to what God has been doing in this world. So the first thing to talk about is this, is how... So and we're going to talk about the place of the church in the history of salvation, and then I want to bring out some practical implications of this for us. So the place of the church in the history of salvation, and the first thing is to say under this main heading is this, that the church was purposed by God from before the creation of the world. Now, if you do happen to have your Bible open, or you can get your Bible open to that passage that we read from Ephesians chapter 1. This is page 1158. You see there that God chose those who belong to him before the world was made. 
Verse 3 of chapter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for the adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. And so on. Now, so God chose us. But what did he choose us to be? Did he choose us to be a collection of individuals who know him? A collection of saved people? Well, look a bit further on. In verse We'll read from verse 7. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. God's plan is to unite all in him. How does that happen? It happens through the church. This is God's great plan. See, our world, as a result of sin, one effect of sin has been to fragment this world, isn't it? And we see this happening all the more at the moment with, this, with the curse of identity politics where, oh, they, where, where people different, different skin colours and different, different racial groups are all identified and, 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 and exaggerated and pointed out. But what the Lord does is to bring together black and white, rich and poor, different nationalities, different ages, Different, different cultural backgrounds, different educational standards, different levels of wealth, to bring all together to become one people in Christ. This is God's great plan, to unite his people together. To be this bride for Christ. And this is from before the creation of the world. God knew that men would sin. God knew that we would fragment but he planned and purposed that he would bring us together. Now, then, say, then the next thing is we go through the history of, of salvation. Uh, we have God's dealings with the people of God in the Old Testament time. God chose Abraham to be the father of the Jews. And Abraham's Grandchildren and great-grandchildren went down to Egypt. There they became very numerous and they became enslaved. And then God brought them out of Egypt using Moses. He took them into the desert and gave them his law in, in, at Sinai. And he told Moses to build a tabernacle for him to live in among the people. And then... 
God brought them into uh, he, they, they disobeyed, the people disobeyed him in lots of ways in the desert and, he did, and they, God disciplined them then God brought them into after 40 years God brought them into the promised land using Joshua and then once they were in the promised land the people kept on disobeying God and God set them one deliverer after another a judge, one judge after another and then the people asked for a king and he gave them a king he gave them the sort of king that they would want Saul but he was a terrible disappointment. And then God gave them King David, a king after God's own heart, who established a mighty empire. But then David's son Solomon disobeyed God and the kingdom was divided into the northern kingdom of Israel, the southern kingdom of Judah, and the northern... But, but before that happened, Solomon built a great temple for God to live in among the people. Well then, say Solomon sinned and then the people were divided, the northern kingdom, the southern kingdom, the northern quickly, kingdom very quickly descended into idolatry and it was overrun by the Assyrians. The southern kingdom struggled on for a few more years, had some good kings, some bad kings, but then idolatry overtook that nation, as well, the, the southern kingdom as well, and that was overrun by the Babylonians and that temple was destroyed. But then after 70 years, they were brought back from, 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 from exile and the temple was rebuilt. Now what's the point of all of that? Why did God do all that with, with, with Abraham and, and his descendants? Well, the answer is for the church. This was a picture, the whole thing was a picture of the church, and wherever you look in the Old Testament, you see a, 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 some. You see uh, the church. Uh, the, the the Israel was a nation. Well, the church is the nation of God. Israel was rescued from the from the kingdom of uh, of Pharaoh. Well, the church has been rescued from the kingdom of Satan. God gave his law to his people. Well, God has given his law to the church. The temple, the, the tabernacle, which was then the, 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 the temple, is a picture of the church. God, the, the church is the temple of the living God. Uh, Israel had a king, David. Well, the church has its king, King Jesus. The people of Israel had to contend against their spiritual enemies. Well, against their enemies we the church have to contend against our enemies the people were brought into the promised land we are heading for the promised land of the new heavens and the new earth it's all about the church in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 there's a very remarkable verse um, in verse um, uh, 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 verse 11 Paul has been talking about the, um, the different ways in which God disciplined the, the people of Israel and then he says this verse 11 he says now these things happen to them as an example or as a type but they were written down for our instruction 
upon whom on whom the end of the ages has come it's all for the church well then coming then the next go on as we go on through the history of salvation we come of course to the fact that Jesus came into the world Jesus took on human flesh and he died on the cross well why did Jesus die well look forward to Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 25 which if you've lost your place it's page 1162 Ephesians 5 and verse 25 it says this Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing with water through the word, that he might present the church to himself, the assembly, the assembly of God's people to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Christ loved the church. And he gave himself for the church, that the church might be beautiful. There might be this beautiful assembly, this beautiful gathering of people, of his people together. Next thing, Jesus was raised from the dead. And he ascended from, and then having been raised from the dead, he ascended back up to the right hand of God. And he was given all power and all authority, all dominion and might. Why did that happen? Yes, for the church. Go back to chapter 1 of Ephesians. Paul is praying in verse 18 onwards uh, that, that uh, what, verse 15 onwards, he's praying for the church, that they, the believers there in, in Ephesus, that they might know uh, the blessings they have in Christ. And, he, and picking up in verse, he prays that they might know what is the greatness of his power, of the power of God that, that is in them, amongst other things. We'll pick up in verse 19. He says, I pray that you might know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that that is named not only in this age but also in the age to come and he has put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church or for the church which is his body the fullness of him who fills everything in every way Christ was raised and exalted that he might be the head over all things for the sake of the church 
his body. That's the whole purpose of it. The body, his body, which is the fullness of him who fills all in all. Difficult to un- understand that last expression. I think it means it's the expression of the fullness of Christ. The church. This is the great expression of Christ's fullness. And it talks also in chapter 3, verse 10, about how through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Through the church, God shows just how great he is. What a marvelous and wonderful God he is. Next thing that happened. In the history of salvation, give you a very quick sketch of the whole history of salvation in, a, in just a half an hour. It's very difficult to do, isn't it? But they were trying to do it. What's the next thing that happened? The Holy Spirit was poured out. Why was the Holy Spirit poured out? You know what the answer is going to be, don't you? For the church. To give gifts to the church. Look at chapter 4 and verse 7. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, he ascended on high. When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean that he also descended to the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is also the one who ascended far above the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds or pastors and teachers. To equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the measure, to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Christ has gone up to heaven. From heaven, he's poured out the Holy Spirit and he's poured out the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And some of those gifts are gifts of preaching and teaching which are given to his church. That the church might grow to the maturity that God wants it to have. Well, now Jesus is in heaven. And what's he doing in heaven? Well, he's doing two things. He's first of all, he's interceding for for whom? For the church. Hebrews talks about how Jesus intercedes. He's interceding for us. And and in John 17, we know what that prayer consists of because Jesus started praying that prayer before he went up to heaven. And he says, I'm not praying for the world, I'm praying for these whom you gave me. And not only for them, but also for others who will believe. He's praying for his church. But also in heaven... Jesus is masterminding the extension of the gospel that his elect, his chosen ones, will be gathered in. If you go back to Matthew chapter 16, Peter makes his great confession of faith in Christ as the Christ, the Son of the living God. And 
Jesus says to Peter, verse 17 of Matthew 16, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for this flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock, the rock of confession, of faith in him, not a man, this is where the Roman Catholic Church gets it wrong and says that, oh, the church is built on a man, Peter. No, no, no. It's on the rock of faith in Christ. On this rock, he says, I will build my church and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. Jesus building his church. From heaven, he is organizing the extension of the kingdom of God. He's, he's sending out workers into the harvest field and he's gathering in his elect from the four corners of the earth. He's building his church. And the gates of Hades cannot stop it happening. And then Jesus is coming again. And why is he coming? You know what the answer is going to be, don't you? He's coming for his church. Well, in fact, to be more precise, with his church. Because his church will come back with him. His assembly, his people, will come back with him. Those who've died already, they're already in heaven. And those who are, who are still alive, uh, they, they will be caught up to meet him as he comes. And Jesus will come back with his people. And he will live among his people on earth. Revelation chapter 21 and verse 21. Verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And the sea was no more. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. Prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Here's the church, the people of God. This is what it was, this is where it's all heading to. A beautiful, perfect, sinless, united people of God who are now who then are married to the Lamb at the great wedding banquet which will happen when he comes. And uh, later on in the chapter, there's a wonderful description, figurative description of, of the new Jerusalem, whose streets are paved with gold, whose, whose, whose uh, foundations are precious stones. So I hope that you've got some idea from, as we've given this lightning sketch of the history of salvation, I hope you've got some idea of the place of the church, the assembly of God's people. The place, the importance this has. The key place this has in the purposes of God. Now I want to, in the time that remains, I want to bring out some applications for us. What, what should be the effect of knowing this upon our lives? Well, the first thing to say is this. That if any of us here is not yet born again, 
you need to be born again because it's only by being part by being born again that you can become part of this church to be a citizen of the new Jerusalem you must be born in Jerusalem in this new Jerusalem but that can only happen through God working in you by his spirit Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12 verse 13 for in one spirit we were all baptized into one body Jews or Greeks slaves or free and we're all made to drink of the one spirit it's only through that work of the spirit in the in a person's heart that you become part of the people of God you know, this is where the church of Jesus Christ is different from any other organization. Any other organization, you pay your dues, you pay your subs, and you're in. Not so the church of Jesus Christ. You need, that has to be that miracle in your heart. Will you say, I, I can't do that miracle in my heart. No, you can't. But what you can do, and what you're commanded to do, is to repent of your sins, to trust in Jesus as your saviour. Have you been saved? If not, come to Christ. That you might be part of this wonderful body. Because if, if you've not been born again, if you've not been saved, you'll be outside of the city. Revelation 21 verse 8 says, But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars. Well, we're all guilty of one of those sins. One or more of those sins, aren't we? It says, their portion will be in a lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. The unsaved will be outside of the city. So it's really important that you come to Christ and you're saved, that you are born again, that you might be part of this city. But what about those of us who, are, who, 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 who have trust in Christ for salvation, who have been born again? What should be the effect upon us of these truths? Well, the answer is that you need to show that you are part of the universal church by being fully committed to a local expression of the universal church, which is the local church, the local assembly. You see, there are some people who say, oh, I'm a Christian. I trusted Jesus as my saviour years ago. Oh, great, you saved them. What church are you part of? Oh, I don't bother with church. don't believe in church. They're all hypocrites. <laughs> Hang on a minute. You say you're a Christian, but you don't believe in church. There's a contradiction there. Because if you really are a Christian, if you really trusted Jesus as your saviour, you are part of his church, whether you like it or not. You are part of his people. And you have a duty to find a local expression of his people and get right into it. 
You can't say, oh, I love Jesus, but you don't love his people. The two come together. Whoever loves the parent loves the child. You Sometimes you get a man who falls in love with a woman and he says, oh, I love you, but I can't stand your kids. She's already married or maybe her first husband died. Can't stand your kids. Well, sorry, the kids come with the woman. You can't love her and not love the kids. It's not, not, not going to work. You can't love God and not love his children. And so we must show our commitment to Christ and our commitment to his people. And so we need to show that we realize and understand the importance of the church by being fully committed to a local expression of his people. Let me just spell out what that means. First of all, it, it means regularly attending in person if possible the meetings of that church. Now, I, I know, I must say immediately when I say this, I know that, that, that some who might be listening to this or might listen to it in the future just cannot get out of their homes because of, of illness. And, and for, for such, um, listening online is, 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 is a very good second best. But is that true for all of us? Uh, I think we, we, we do need to recognize that, that we're in a bit of a dangerous period at the moment because we've just had a health crisis. And because of that health crisis, by law, we were not allowed to meet together. Now, some churches decided to break that law. I, I'm not sure they were right, necessarily, because of the, the risks of doing so. But the thing is this, that, yes, okay, we needed to do things online for a while, out of necessity. The danger is we think, oh, that was quite nice. <laughs> you don't have to leave your house. You can keep your bedroom slippers on. You can have your breakfast while watching church on, 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 on the computer or on the phone. Oh, I quite like this. Oh, I don't have to turn out. In the, it's a midnight meeting. I don't have to turn out because it's a bit cold. It's raining a bit. I can just join online. It's great. Fantastic. But are we really showing the commitment to the people of God by just, oh, well, I'll just watch online? Is that what it's about? Doesn't the scripture say that the people need to assemble in person? And surely this should mean more than just once on a Sunday. Surely. Again, I know for some, once on a Sunday is all they can manage. And they get home and they're exhausted. They're flat out. They're finished for the week. Fine. But is that true for all of us? Would it really finish you off if you came back for an afternoon service? Would it, would it half kill you if you came out to a Bible study or a prayer meeting? Is it, is, it, is it really that for you? I'm not talking about other people. Maybe for others that might be. But for you, you ask yourself that question. Is it really that difficult for you to come out? I can't answer that question, but you can ask that question to yourself, can't you? 
Another practical implication is that we, we must love each other. I mean, this is the whole point, is it? The whole thing is that the Lord's purpose is that there are people who love each other. That is what we're heading for. You know, sometimes I say to people, well, you know, they can't get on with another Christian. Well, you're going to have to get on with him or her in heaven, so you might as well get on with it now. You can't go to your own little corner and say, well, I'm not talking to so-and-so. But anyway, what a, what a disgrace it is if, we, if you have Christians who won't talk to each other. How the world laughs. But Jesus said, didn't he? A new commandment I give to you that you love each other. By this men will know that you are made of disciples if you have love for one another. If we, if we get into our own little ruts and our own little cliques and our own little groups, whether they're within the church or between churches, and we say, oh, I'm not talking to this, then what are we saying? We're putting ourselves against God. We're putting ourselves against the entire eternal purpose of God. Can we expect the, expect the blessing of God to rest upon us when we fight against his very purpose? And then surely another application is that we pray for each other. Um, Paul says this, doesn't he? In Ephesians 6, as Ed has been pointing out to us in, in, uh, in his sermons on Sunday evenings, um, that uh, part of, the, of what it means to, to, to fight the spiritual warfare is that we pray for each other. With this in mind, he says, keep alert with all the perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. We need to pray for each other. Lord, so so. Lord, help so so. Help my brother, help my sister. Pray for each other. And then also we need to Build each other up in the truth. That passage I read from Ephesians 4 where he talks about how God has given his, 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 his servants to the church, he's given gifts to the church, that they, that, that they might prepare God's people for works of service. He goes on to say um, in verse um, uh, 14, Verse 15, he says, rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with, its, with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body to grow so that it builds itself up in love. You see, what a pastor like me, what I do is I prepare you for the work that you do of building up your brothers and sisters in Christ. This, is only, this sermon is just the beginning. And every sermon is just the beginning. It's giving you the resources that you need to then, you can then build each other up and encourage each other in the truth. We must be doing that. But how can you do that if you, the minute service is over, pop, off you go, out the door, don't see anybody for the, for the whole week, and then you come in, and then serves, sit down for the service, and then pop, off you go, no contact with anybody after the service, no contact with anybody during the week, 
living your own personal private life, just doing your own thing, and then living your own individual, you have your own Bible study, yes, very good, your own prayer time, very good. But what about the fellowship? What about the building up? What about the encouragement? One of the other. We need to be doing that, don't we? But because there, if we because we're involved in this tremendous enterprise of building the church of Christ. The most important thing there is. As he says in chapter 2 of Ephesians. Uh, verse 19. So you are no longer strangers and aliens, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of this household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. This is, this is where it's all at. This is the great task. Yes, we've got our jobs to do. Yes, we've got our families to do, to look after. Of course we have. We've got responsibilities. Yes, we've got to look after our own health and got to look after our homes and do the washing up and tidy up and do the washing. Of course we've got these things to do. But the great thing is the church. That's the great thing. We do the other things we have to do, of course. But the great consuming thing must be the church. Now this must also mean that there will be times when actually we need to confront each other. Matthew 18, if your brother sins against you, go and show him his fault just between the two of you. We need to be willing to do that. Sometimes it has to be done. We don't enjoy it. Some of us, most of us, probably hate the idea of confrontation. We have to do it sometimes. Another practical implication is that we allow others to confront us. You know, there are some people who are very, very happy to tell others their faults. But if anybody comes to that person and says, excuse me, could I just have a word with you? I'd like to just talk with you about this thing that I've observed. Oh, no! They won't allow it. Why? Are you like that? Very touchy, very ready to criticize others, but not ready to receive criticism yourself. Do you know the word for that? It's called pride. That's what it is, it's pride. We need to have that humility to allow others to challenge us. And then another practical implication is past submitting to pastoral oversight. You see, the Lord has given shepherds to his church to look after his sheep. What if Ed or what if I says to you, oh, um, could we come and see you? would just like to see how you are. No, no, no. Don't, don't want to visit. Thank you very much. What's that saying? I don't need, you don't need a pastor? Are you sure? You don't need somebody to, to make sure you're okay? We need to submit to pastoral oversight. We need to live a holy life. The church is the holy people of God. If we get into sin, we're letting the whole side down. We're bringing disgrace 
not just upon ourselves, not just upon Christ, but upon the church. Well, there's more I could say, and time is going. Support the evangelistic work of the church. Support the work of the church financially. Come into formal membership of the church. Participate in decision-making of the church. I can't really go into all these things now. But may God help us to see the church, the central place of the church. And may we say, yes, I want to be on board. I want to be involved. I want to be part of this. This great enterprise to see the church of the Lord Jesus Christ built up and flourish. Well, may God write his word upon our hearts. I'd like us to now sing number 570. Glorious things of you are spoken, Zion City of our God. 570.